Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your supervisors and managers, please check out our newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Boss. In this 13-month program, I'll be taking your managers through our driving results curriculum, and that includes topics on communication, performance management, motivation, delegation, problem solving, decision making, team development, and much more. The sessions are virtual, running one hour each month, and I'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoint, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide tactical, practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You can either have your entire organization take our program, or if you have just a few folks, join one of our many open enrollment cohorts that start every other month. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. You know, most of us don't think about the workplace as a place where there's a lot of fun, love, and laughter. But our guest today would disagree with that. Our guest is Patrick Malone. Now, he is the co-author of Leading with Love and Laughter with co-author Zena Such. Patrick's a really interesting guy. I met him years ago as he was transitioning out of the military, and now he's an academic, he's an author, he is a fountain of knowledge, and I thoroughly enjoyed the talk that we had. He will talk to us today about why leading with love and laughter is a great way to build engagement, to increase motivation and retention, and to make life a whole lot better in the workplace. He's got a great backstory. He's the only guy I've ever met that actually lives on a boat, and he is somebody who I think you're really going to enjoy. So let's quit talking about him. Let's talk to him. Sit back. It's time for us to take off. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Patrick Malone, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mac. It is a pleasure to be here. Great having you here. Uh, what many people probably don't know is that uh, I knew you in a former life. And uh, I'm going to let you talk about that former life here in just a bit. But what is amazing is that you and your co-author have created a really amazing book and you are really doing some fun things now. We want to talk about that in our time together. The book that you have written along with your partner, Zena Such, is a book called Leading with Love and Laughter. We want to dig down into that. But before we do, I was hoping you could share your background with us and tell us a little bit about your journey that led you to writing this book and what you're doing today. Yeah, thank you so much, Mac. Yeah, I started off in um, actually in the healthcare field in the private sector many, many years ago with a company that is now called Accenture, uh, doing healthcare consulting. And one thing led to another. I I wasn't really terribly happy with with my career choice, even though I loved healthcare. And ended up as a medical service corps officer in the Navy, which is, of course, the time that you and I spent together and Barb as well, and had 23 delightful years uh, serving our nation and, and, and serving our, our families and service members around the world, which was just great. Uh, as part of that journey, at some point, the Navy decided that they needed to educate me a bit more, and they sent me back to school to get my doctorate. And I went to American University. And while I was there, I started developing an interest in leadership development and leadership transition ended up doing a lot of teaching for American. Uh, my last tour in the Navy was at the medical school, Uniformed Services University, 
where it was just a wonderful place. And I actually thought that's where I was going to retire and just change clothes and grow my hair a little longer and uh, maybe wear, you know, a little bit less polyester and more cotton, right? And it ended up that Americans said, no, no, we want you to come work for us full time. And, and I did. And, you know, as, as much as I love my Navy career, and I really did, this has been a wonderful journey as well, because I've gotten the chance to work with public servants from all across government. And so that's kind of how I got to where I am today. I direct a program called the Key Executive Leadership Program. We do leadership development for pretty much mid-level managers all the way up through senior executives. And, uh, and we're very heavily focused on things like emotional intelligence and mindfulness and kindness. I like to tell people we were founded just after the Beatles released the Let It Be album, and uh, we're all about those cool things. That's great. So for those who don't know where American University is, where is that? It is a small liberal arts university in northwestern D.C. It's been around since the late 1800s. In fact, it was the first university in the country to be carbon neutral. And that happened about four years ago. It's a very environmentally sensitive university. Lots of focus on public service and international service. It's a, it's a great place to be. It's great. And has a metro stop named after it, if I remember correctly. AU Tinley Town. There you go. How about that? Yeah, you knew you were getting close to Metro Center. So that's when you grab your stuff and try to elbow your way to the door so you don't get <laughs> stuck. Of course, I'm sure the metro is not that crowded these days with COVID and everything that's going on. But uh, yeah, remember that fondly. Well, you have then really transitioned into a different lifestyle, different career, and now the book. So tell us how the book came about. So Zena and I, uh, Zena teaches, Zena's a senior executive and, and she teaches leadership uh, program uh, in our program as well. And we had many, many conversations over, over several months about leadership, just things that we were experiencing, our own leadership failures and, and struggles. And we were talking one night Granted, it was over a glass or two of Merlot or something. And we started talking about, well, what is it about leadership that that sets those leaders apart? The ones that we've worked for and worked with that we really admire and that we would really give our discretionary energy and time and thought to. Because, you know, there's so much leadership development out there, Mac. There's so many places to go. And there's and all and programs are great. I mean, the certifications are great. There's a lot of great curriculum and a lot of good experiential programs. But even people that go through those sometimes come out the other end and they're really not very good. And, and we were trying to figure out what it was that set leaders apart. And we stumbled on a, a story, and we both experienced this, where we had a, a, a mutual acquaintance who was a senior executive in government. And one of the things that she would always say was to approach things with an open heart. And we started talking about that concept. And, and what we kind of fell into was the X factor that seemed to be missing in, in, in leadership development and in the leadership literature was a simple focus on the purity of love and the purity of laughter. And it wasn't that certification programs and black belts and green belts and all those things aren't good. It's just that people build them uh, oftentimes on kind of an artificial platform. And, and our argument was, look, those things are great, but take a step back and, and think about heart and love and, and kindness and laughter and how they inform your leadership. And that's how we started with the book. Well, that's an interesting concept. And, you know, I mean, there are tons and tons of books on these subjects, I, I have to admit. And of course, we don't have, you know, I don't go to Barnes and Noble. We don't have one around here. But the old days, you could go to the bookstore, right? And everybody's got a book on leadership. And yet yours is there too. But I have not seen anything about love as part of leadership. I mean, are you sure that doesn't go in the self-help section? <laughs> you know, it's interesting in, in, in the love, the, the couple of chapters on love, 
the one that it's, and it's really funny you mentioned that, Mac, because in those chapters, the argument that we make is that the most important love is self-love, is our ability to be okay with who we are, our ability to be uh, comfortable with the gifts that we bring and, and, and also comfortable with what we don't bring. And so, yeah, th this is, you know, the book's very heavy in the positive psychology realm. It's, it's, it's not written, um, there's plenty of research and we, we did ground everything in the science for sure. But what we didn't want to do is create an academic kind of a book or some sort of a model or anything like that. We just wanted to tell a story. And, and you're right on. It, it is very much part self-help. And it's really about, your, it's about all of our journeys, not only as leaders and, and uh, in, in the workplace, but leaders in our homes and our, with our friends and family and partners as well. Well, everything you just mentioned is about home and family and partners. How does this apply to the workplace? Because I have never thought about the workplace as a place of love. The workplace that you and I shared for many years, I don't recall a hell of a lot about love in uniform. <laughs> um, so how does that fit in and what are the barriers that might prevent it from, I guess, spreading if that's what we want it to do? Absolutely. You know, the, it's uh, love is tricky because when when you look up, if, if you Google things like love in the workplace or love comma workplace, you end up with a lot of hits for inappropriate relationships in the workplace, relationships in the workplace, why that shouldn't happen, how to guard yourself against these things. And I think there are some there are some key barriers. I mean, there's some things that we really avoid with this. Uh, for example, um, we're fearful, and, and rightly so. I think we're fearful of, of this concept of love. It's like, well, if, if I say I love anything in my workplace or you, or I love this team, what if that's misconstrued as being something that's not you know wholesome and, and, and meaningful, but rather something that may be of a more sexual or intimate content? And, and so there's a legitimate concern about that, a legitimate fear. It's very similar with laughter as well. Um, but also, I think one of the other reasons that um, that this is a fear is because we've spent a lot of time developing leaders based on skill sets. And the skill sets are the expertise that we build and all those things. And they're important. They're important. And But when you got to lead or when you have to influence, or even if you're just working with people, the connection that we build is not really through our expertise. We may admire someone for their expertise, but we don't really, we're not really inspired by them. We're more, we're more inspired by the soft skills. We're more inspired by what we see as noble intent and, and kindness and, and gratitude and grace and presence and those things. And so I think that's how love works its way into the workplace. It's a very subtle, uh, but it's very important as well. So if love is going to be part of that, I mean, is that... The word is the same as what we would use for our parents or children or for our partner, which is that that like you would give your life for that partner or those children. I mean, is it that strong in the workplace? Because I've never had anybody that I've ever worked with, except when Barb and I worked together, that I would ever give my life for in that context. Unless, of course, it was during time of war, which, you know, I fought the battle against tooth decay. There was no battles in the dental chair. But I mean, is, is that an exaggeration or does that still follow the same path? Is that that same type of devotion? It's definitely a different type of devotion. I mean, we, we make the point in the book about the, the, the way that we hear the word love used in common language. So, for example, you just gave a list of things that that we that we love. And yes, obviously, we love our the, our, the people we're devoted to. We love our children in ways that we would never love our work or even our coworkers. But we also say we love tacos. 
And we also love the Dallas Cowboys. And we also love to go, you know, we also love to travel. And and that meaning of love is different as well. So yes, it's it's clearly a different type of love. And 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 one of the things we we talk about in the book is this delineation of the different Greek types of love and what they meant by that. And it, it, and what it's meant to say is, look, we're not talking about the kind of love you would have for your partner, but we are talking about the kind of love you had for another human being or just the caring that you would have and the compassion that you might have for the people that you work with. So I'm trying to remember, I went to a Lutheran school and I remember we talked about the Greek interpretation of love. So of course there's agape, which is that unconditional. There is a, uh, Eros, which is that kind of erotic, and I remember—I think it was—is it Storge? You're the academic. Storge, not. yeah. Storge, Storge is the is the brotherly sister love. Felucia uh, uh-huh. uh, is the one that's the self love. That's the one that we really make the point toward the end of the chapter that this is probably the most important one because there are so many things in our lives in our professional lives and our personal lives that keep us from being okay with loving who we are as people. And, and, you know, one of the things that we do as well that we talk about a lot is we don't profess to have the answers to any of this. In fact, you'll notice one of the, the, the language we use when we talk about this, when we're doing interviews or, or, or shows or anything like that, we talk about trying. We say, just, just try, try this, try that, because it's not going to work for all of us, right? And, and, and the different types of love that are out there, um, these, these are the ones that the, the one that, that we, uh, like I mentioned, the one that we really think is important is, is Felucia, which is the self-love. But there's also one called pragma, which the word pragmatic comes from, which is kind of love over time. Uh, you kind of develop a pragmatic love for one another where you kind of work together. Uh, and, and sometimes, sadly, in relationships, when the passion is gone and the romance is gone, you're just kind of coexisting. Uh, all those are in there. But the point being that what we're really looking for is that kind of unique love in the workplace that we share for the folks we're with, the people that are devoting themselves to the same mission. And, and to the mission itself. So if this is a concept that, I mean, it sounds radical, I have to admit, is what is the alternative? So somebody who is not in love with something is either lonely or they're in a relationship where they're not happy. How would that analogy work in a workplace? Because I have worked in plenty of them where there's zero love. There's a lot of apathy, there's hate, there's discontent, there's complaining and turnover. I mean, is it that radical of a difference or is there sort of a sliding scale from misery to love? I think what's radical, uh, Mac, is even talking about it in the workplace because, because the, the, the science shows, the research shows now that when there is a workplace where people feel love in the workplace, where they feel that they are cared for, where they feel that they can be open and honest and vulnerable, that they are more productive, they're more innovative, they're more creative. I mean, look, very few of us work in places where we have unlimited resources. And, and clearly for you and me, and uh, we didn't grow up in a place where we had unlimited resources and, and many folks that work out there don't. But what is unlimited are the, the passion and the heart and the commitment of the people that you work with, the people you work for, the people that you lead. And the way you tap into that is not through direction. I like to say connection, not direction. You, you type in, you, you get into that through connection. And doing that through love, it, it allows the organization to become more productive, more mission focused because people feel safe and they feel comfortable. In fact, j- just there was a fascinating study, and this is really a, a good one that was done back in the, in the 30s. It was started in 1938 uh, by Harvard. And this study is still ongoing today. It's the longest continual longitudinal study of love ever. And what happened was back in the 30s, they they found 268 individuals 
And they started tracking their lives and they examined the presence of love in their lives and the impact of love in their lives. As of just a few years ago of that original 268 folks, there were 19 still alive. And the researchers are still tracking them in this big longitudinal comprehensive study. And what they found is that that people that were that came from loving environments and that worked in loving loving environments were healthier, they were professionally more successful, they were happier, they were creating better environments. And so that's kind of the message that we've tried to get across is, you know, the places where you and I have been where where love was not present, did the work get done? Sure, absolutely it got done. Uh, and and I would call that to some degree coercion. It might just be direction and those have their place. But if we really want to tap into the real productivity and the real happiness and joy in the workplace, we have to include love in that equation. Now, there's a lot of companies that, uh, of course, a lot of this is completely stopped now because we're still fighting this battle against COVID. But you know, I've seen companies that have all sorts of perks, free food, meditation rooms, game rooms, uh, all sorts of really cool things. I would think love would permeate. I, I did a workshop at a place and everybody's walking around in pajama bottoms with a bowl of cereal, they had a cereal bar. So, I mean that, and they're sitting on pillows in my workshop. Now I would think love would permeate an environment like that, but I wouldn't see it necessarily in a sweatshop someplace. Does the environment bring the love or make the love easier or does this go independent of the environment? Well, those types of motivators that you just described are, are definitely good. I mean, they're definitely nice things to have. They're perks, as you mentioned, and, and they're lovely. But what, what, what happens is those are more extrinsic motivators than intrinsic motivators. So you can still have the nice office space and you can still have the ping pong tables in the lobby and, and the flexible work schedules and those kind of things. And those are, those are delightful and, and they definitely contribute. But what they don't do is they don't cover up a toxic workplace. They don't, they don't, they're not the answer for bosses who are demanding too much or who are saying, I don't care about the fact that your family is going through COVID right now. Look, we've got ping pong tables here. You get, look at all the stuff we've get, look at all the things we've given you, right? It's just, that's not enough. It's, it's an easy solution. It's not always, uh, I mean, the, the perks are an easy solution. They're not always a cheap solution, but they're easy. But, but study after study after study has shown that those types of extrinsic motivators have minimal, it's just like pay. It has a minimal, impact and it's not a lasting impact and people will eventually leave if they really aren't feeling the connection in the workplace so i'm thinking too with you know somebody who is searching i mean it sounds like a really bad cliche like looking for love i mean is in your experience do you find that individuals are leaving a company saying i want to go somewhere else but i want to go somewhere where i feel loved or do you think they might express that need in some other way? Because I'm just thinking about anybody who's trying to recruit today that's listening to this. Mm. And now here's a whole new thing that we can look at beyond just the perks. I mean, is this something that like you can somehow screen for somebody who's requiring love and you're going to provide it? My goodness gracious, if you want to hire a Gen Z or a millennial, you better think about it because it is, you know, one of the things that we've heard from the, the two youngest generations right now is that they they want to know that they are cared for they want to know that they have a role they want to they want to actually be uh, they want to be nurtured and developed and trained and and grow and the only way we can do that as supervisors or as recruiters is to convince them hey you're coming into a place where we're going to care about you and, and there's a, there's a lot of generational uh, data on this about millennials especially who grew up in a different kind of a home than you and I may have grown up in 
where they were the most monitored generation ever. Uh, the parents were around. The parents oftentimes are their best friends. And listen, I was the father. I am the father of millennial daughter. So I, I'm just as guilty. And it isn't that I did anything wrong, but it's what the times demanded. So now what my daughters are looking for is they're looking for a place where they feel something more than just the perks and the benefits and the other things. Uh, the other thing that plays into this a lot is when you look at the data for what has happened since COVID hit. So in the in, in January, February of this year, when the latest uh, research came out about the number of people leaving the workforce, a lot of the people that left the workforce, and by the way, a, a majority of women, a large number of women left the workforce, uh, more than men. But the, the, the people that left the workforce, a lot of them left the workforce because they were like, you know what? I know what's important now. I, I, you know, I'm buying a boat, try and buy a boat nowadays. You, you can't do it. You know, I'm going to buy an RV. You can't buy an RV either. You're on a waiting list. I mean, people are kind of going back to those values that really make us who we are as human beings. And I think love plays a role there. So not only in recruitment, but also in retention. And as people are going back to the workplace, I'm not going to say back to work because people have been working already, but when they're going back to a physical workplace and they're starting to come in, what we're advising employers to do is, Hey, be careful about just putting out your plan. Here's our plan. We're going to have this and this. You need to allow these folks to grieve. You need to allow them to tell their COVID story because we all have a COVID story. And you need to allow them to come back knowing that they are, they are not cared for because one of the things that employers have done actually quite well in the last 18 months or so is they elevated employee health and well-being to the top of the list. And they did it really well. We all did. It's like, you know what? Don't you dare come in. We are going to take care of this. We want you and your family to be safe. That's all good. That's great. That's terrific. But guess what? That population of, of labor, that labor force out there, they ain't going to forget that. So when now we're saying, well, you got to come back, they're going to be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Hold on. Delta variants out there. People are getting reinfected. I've been doing my job perfectly well for the last year and a half. You care about me how much? So it matters now even more than ever. Well, I see the love and that's really clear. And there's a lot of, I think, of deep things that you can do. We've got a perfect opportunity now, I think, to reinvent a lot of things. But we haven't talked about the other piece of the title of this book, and that's the laughter piece. So let's talk about laughter in a vacuum, and then let's talk about those two together. So tell me about laughter. <laughs> well, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that... Uh that Zena let me put this in the book. Because <laughs> it was actually, we, we, we knew it was more than love and we couldn't think, we were thinking of what this other variable was. And, and we really felt laughter was important, but both love and laughter have an extraordinary impact on our bodies. When we feel love, when we exude love, uh, when we feel laughter, when we smile, when we exude joy, and it, it, all of those things physiologically, mentally, neurochemically, the, the benefits are extraordinary. So we knew physically this was a great thing. But what we weren't sure about with the laughter piece was, well, how is that going to work in a book like this? Because when people hear laughter, they think, and we hear this all the time, people will say, well, you know, it's not professional. Uh, I've got boundaries. We run a tight ship here. And, and one of the examples that, that we gave, uh, that we talk about quite a bit, is I worked my way through college as a surgical tech. And for those that don't know what that is, that's a person in the operating room that passes instruments and closes the body and holds the spleen and pulls the liver back with a diva retractor and all these things. So I worked in a big county hospital, scrubbed on open hearts and craniotomies, everything for, for four years to work my way through college. I've never been in a funnier place than an operating room. Once you're asleep, you have no idea what's going on. It's crazy in there. So my thought was, look, if we can enjoy ourselves there, then unless you're in a life-threatening situation, we can probably find laughter and humor everywhere. When we started looking at the research, and what we found was that that laughter and, and, and joy 
in the workplace is something that creates such a connection and such a bridge. And, and I'll give you an example. We, we, I used to work for an admiral and she was a very talented, still is a very talented person, uh, tremendously gifted. And she had a team of like four of us and we were all going to lunch one day. And so we were like, well, should we invite the admiral? I was like, wait, she's the admiral. Should we invite the admiral? I don't know. Should we invite the admiral? So we finally nominated somebody to send her an email and say, hey, admiral, ma'am, uh, admiral, ma'am, we are going to lunch today at um, uh, Plaza de Mexico. We'd like to know if you'd like to join us for tacos. And like five minutes later, she replied and her forward reply was really what made us put laughter in this book. And it was, I'm down with it. That's all she wrote. I'm down with it. And we're thinking this season, and she was like a heart surgeon and whatever, this seasoned professional leader, et cetera, just came up with this street level, hey, I'm down with it kind of thing. And we thought that was the coolest thing ever. This is what laughter does for us, Mag. It allows us to connect with one another. And in fact, when you look at the history of laughter and how laughter developed to the degree that we know, because we don't know, because we don't know for sure, but we suspect that, that uh, early cave people that they they uh, engaged in what was called non-serious incongruity and and this was a way of kind of bantering and bumping against one another and grunting when they were warm and fed and comfortable and most anthropologists think that that's kind of what's given way to today's laughter it does make a difference in the workplace without a doubt also given rise to today's modern tailgate i think too doesn't it <laughs> absolutely so now with laughter, so love, I can see where we can fit that in, but laughter can be a very divisive thing because something has to prompt the laughter. So at what point are we going to worry about what makes us laugh? Because you could go to a comedy show and people with several drinks and some weed are falling out of their chairs laughing. But if you had a sober group with some of those comedians, they'd be walking out. So I think substance can make things funny, but how do we manage that in a workplace where we're not allowed to have substance? Well, you're, you're tapping into something with laughter that really was a double-edged sword for us as we looked into this topic. And that was that more than love, you know, love, we, we mentioned the, the issue of love versus romance and, and relationships. And that's not what we were talking about. We had to make that distinction. For, for laughter, it's even more dangerous because laughter, you can, you can offend a person or a group of people very, very quickly. And, and, and one of the things to remember about, about laughter as a leader, as a manager, is it's not, about, it's not about telling jokes. It really isn't. And that's where people get in, themselves in trouble. They feel like they need to become a comedian. And that's really not what it is. It's really about just being comfortable with thine own self. It's about being thine own self, which means that you relax a little bit and you say, hey, I'm down with that. Or you don't, you, you, we don't have to wear the mask all the time of the director or of the pharmacist or of the teacher or of the driver, whatever we happen to do. We don't have to wear the mask all the time. It's okay to let our guard down and have a little giggle and connect with people. But we have to remember, and, and this is so crucial where laughter is concerned, that we, we if, if we are about to tell, if we're about to crack a joke, if we're about to little one-liner, even if it's a self-effacing, which is by the way, the most effective for us as leaders is the self-effacing humor. But if we're about to, to utter something or do something that is meant to make others laugh, we have to remember that if, if we have one split second of doubt, don't do it. Just don't do it. Because if you think it might be offensive, it might be. And any kind of laughter or humor or banter 
that offends a person or that just simply singles out a person is really not advisable because you never know how they're going to react. You don't know what other people in the room may know. You just have to be so careful. And, and that's one of the most important parts about it. You're absolutely right. It's something that content really does matter. Context matters quite a bit with this. So it sounds like if we're going to follow the lead that, you, that you've written about with your partner on this, that this would almost require a bit of a culture change. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the stodgiest work environments I have done business in, you know, where it's like, you know, this is the no fun zone in this place. Because I, I would imagine there are going to be some HR folks that are listening who have that seat at the table. And, and I think a lot of companies are looking for this. Look, we've had a chance to redo everything. When you're out of the office for a year and a half, now we can rebuild it better. Aside from buying your book, which we're going to figure out how to get to that book in just a minute, what could an HR professional do today to at least start the conversation about bringing in laughter and bringing in love? You know, it's, it's a great question and, and it, is, it is a challenge, but I do think that you're right, Mac. We are at a place where if we don't do it now, when are we going to do it? I mean, we've had everything reset for us in the last 18 months. Everything has been reset. And so now would be the time. I, I think one of the things, uh, there are several things they can do. Number one, do a, uh, just do a quick look around, check around, just do a, a quick, simple act of noticing, checking around the organization. How often do you actually hear laughter? Do you hear people laughing either in your in your virtual environment or in the in-person environment um, also ask the ask your team or ask the people that you work with to gauge the chill factor we call it the chill factor uh, one being you know really not chill at all but very intense and very you know stodgy versus 10 being the Beatles hey Jude just kind of hey everything's just like cool it's all good hey Jude don't make it bad right and so do that little observation first and then also engage your leadership. And, and, and here's something that I hope the HR folks will take away. I've seen this happen many times, but one, in, one, particular, one particular organization that I was working with, very, very, very formal, uh, militaristic law enforcement type of organization with a big, scary guy in charge. And he was a big, scary guy. And everyone was afraid of him. He was Mr. Whatever his name was, Mr. So-and-so. And everyone always, they, they, just, they would just cower when this guy was around. And, and I, I worked with them for a while and I just, I got the biggest kick out of it because there was the whole alpha macho thing going on. I'm like, come on, what is going on here? And fortunately for this person, his HR, his head of HR went to him and said, sir, you're going to have to do something. You, you know, you mentioned culture change back. You want to change this culture because people are leaving. They don't like, they don't like working here. They don't feel cared for. I need you to do something for me. And he said, what, what do you need me to do? And she said, I need you to tell your story. And his answer was, well, nobody cares about you. She said, please, just trust me. Tell your story. So they called in all hands. And this guy stepped up in front of the microphone. And normally in all hands with him would be, you know, very formal. No one's really going to ask what they really want to know. No one's really going to complain. They're, it's Mr. So-and-so. It's the big scary guy. And he stepped up and he said, you know, I just wanted to tell you all my story and because I, I don't think we all know each other well enough. And then what he proceeded to do was tell the story of his family that immigrated to this nation that were on this little tiny boat that crossed the Pacific. He lost family members. He didn't speak English. And most of them didn't. And he, they ended up just a handful of them literally making it to the shore in Northern California, the whole nine yards about his. And it was a tragic 
and sad story. He peppered it with, you know, some, you know, a little bit of humor here and there, some kind of uh, neat observations that, that made people kind of smile. And, and when he finished his story, there was not a dry eye in the room. And what, what my HR friend told me is she said that that day marked the change in culture. And it was because he was willing to put himself out there. And, and my point being that for leaders, it's your responsibility. Don't wait for it to happen. You've got to drive this by setting the example. And he did it in an authentic and legitimate way where he opened his heart to these people. And he said, this is my story. And it's got tragedy and it's got fun and it's got success and it's got failure. But this is who I am. Not, I'm not Mr. So-and-so, the guy in charge of all this. I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, it's first time. I'm really David, whatever his name was. And I think that's how culture changes. I mean, it's, it, it, and once again, that's not direction. And you and I have seen this so much time, many times in our career where a new in charge person will come in, I'm going to change the culture. And everyone goes, okay, yeah, thanks. We appreciate that. Thank you. Let us know when it's done. But this person didn't go in with that intent. He went in with the intent of, let me just share something about you. And I think that when we talk about love and laughter, this is what he did so effectively. And the fact that it came from an authentic place, the fact that he drew emotions out of the people that he was talking to, and that place literally changed overnight, literally changed overnight. And then I hired the HR person to teach in our program. <laughs> it was very wise. He's magnificent. I know talent when I see it. You know what? That's I mean, great. I, I got to have someone to cover for me. It's great. <laughs> No, I think that's great. It, it's just, I guess it's authenticity and, and that's key. Well, I want to go back to something you said a little earlier. You said that you can't hardly buy a boat these days, and yet you wrote this book on a boat. So was it yours or did you just commandeer somebody else's? We, we bought a boat, uh, Zena and I bought a boat three and a half years ago, uh, never having sailed. Uh, we had been we had been on one sailboat in our lives with friends, and we were drinking, and that was all we remember. We didn't pull any lines, we didn't do anything, and we just loved the marina and the life and the water. There's a, there's there's a lot of research out there on the blue mind and being out and, and being able to see water on a regular basis and what that does to your mind. I think we fell in love with that, and so we bought this 40 foot Bavaria German yacht. And, and it was uh, during the sea trial, which is 27 degrees, and the water is just off of Annapolis, Maryland. And the, the, the vendor looked at me, he's driving the boat, and he looked at me, he goes, Patrick, can you hand me the jib sheet, please? And I looked at him and I stared at him, he goes, you have no idea what a jib sheet is. And I said, <laughs> I don't. So in the last three years, we learned to sail uh, by watching a lot of YouTube videos and depending on a lot of uh, generous friends and their time. And so we started writing the book on the boat mainly because we had daughters that moved back into the house. And we're like, you know what? We don't want to be here with you. We love you, but we're going to go live on the boat for a while. <laughs> so we lived on the boat most of the last three years. And, and we were actually on the boat when we had the idea. And we wrote almost the entire book sitting on the boat, which uh, was just a real joy. That's great. Yeah, I think that would be really inspirational. So on that note, is there any other books on the horizon now? You know, we are working. It, it, it's funny. We have enjoyed this so much that the minute it came out back in May, we reached back out to the publisher and we said, hey, we have an idea for a new book. <laughs> and he said, back off, Junior. Just relax a little bit. We got a little bit of work to do to promote this one. I have no doubt we can do another book with you, but let's wait until, oh, let's say December to start talking about it. In the meantime, Zena's already started uh, writing it out. 
I, I don't know exactly what this is going to look like ultimately, Mac, but I think that for us, we, we are looking at some concept that has to do with the rehumanization of the workplace, uh, the focus on the human, the focus on people. Um, you know, we, we were writing an article last night. We got into this big discussion about that phrase, mission first, people always. And, you know, we, we were discussing that. And, and I think one of the things that we really feel very strongly about is, is our need to connect and, and, and live on this planet with, with all of the other beautiful people that are on this planet with us. And, and, and there's, there's so much, there's so much beauty and joy to those relationships. And, and those are really what fuel the innovation and the creativity and everything that makes our organizations work. So we're not really sure where we're going to go with it. We, that's kind of the working title or the working concept. And, and there will probably be titles on uh, probably areas on diversity and inclusion and accessibility and team building and all those things. But right now we're in the very early stages, but yes, you can definitely count on it. There are tons. If you, if you type in Zena such as name into Google, you'll find all the articles we've written. Uh, many of them have been published recently in CEO world and women 2.0 and a lot of other places. So we're still writing a lot, but the next book, I don't think we'll see that for at least another year and a half. Well, you probably are going to have some yeah, some quiet time with COVID and the boat's always going to be good. So we'll look forward no to that. Well, Patrick, this has been a great conversation. And if you are listening to this today and you are part of your speaker selection for a conference, may I suggest you get Patrick to come and be your keynote at one of the many state SHRM conferences. He's a great guy. Patrick, how do we find you? How do we reach out to you? And more importantly, then, how do we get a copy of the book? Wonderful. Well, thank you. The, the, the best place to go for all of those things is to our website, which is suchmalone.com. S-U-T-C-H-M-A-L-O-N-E. And I don't remember the military phonetical things for that, but suchmalone.com. And that's got the copy of the book. It has, we're posting all of our articles on that website. Our contact information is there. Uh, you can send us an email directly and then, and then we'll respond, of course. We, the, the, if, if you do go to the website today, it's gonna. It looks good. It really looks good. It's. It, we're, we're doing it ourselves, and so the technology behind building and create and maintaining your own website kind of new for us. But right now, it looks pretty doggone good, and we're going to be adding a few things to that. Many of the articles we've been writing, but suchmalone.com the best way to reach us, and we'd be delighted to chat with anyone anytime. That's great. Well, Patrick, hey, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show, and looking forward to the next book. And uh, when we get up to Annapolis, I'm gonna look you up because I know nothing about sailing. You know probably a lot more than me. Um, and I'll help you with your website if you want. How's that sound? That sounds like a deal, Mac. And thank you for what you do. You get a lot of great information out to a lot of people. Thank you for, uh, for your service, my friend. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.